Bible, Matthew 16, verses 21 to 27. I think it will appear on the screen as well. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Good morning. Um, one of the highlights of the last month or so has been a TV programme that I've been watching on Netflix. It's called The Last Dance. The Last Dance uh, tells the story of Michael Jordan's uh, superb, perhaps the greatest of all basketball teams of all time. Um, Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, and of course MJ, his royal heirness as he's known, Michael Jordan, is in the team. And the Last Dance, you can see a picture of it now, The Last Dance uh, tells the story of the final season of the greatest team perhaps ever to have played the sport. Uh, would they be able to do the uh, second three-peat? Would they be able to win their sixth championship trophy? And whether you like basketball or not, it's not about the trophies for me. It's not about the amazing athleticism of Michael Jordan, and he is amazing. What is absolutely fascinating is the psychological expose that the 10-part program reveals. I mean, golly, the, the motivation of the man, the sheer drivenness, the uh, combative nature of his words and his actions towards his teammates. At the end of um, episode seven, right at the end, uh, Michael Jordan breaks down in tears. He calls an end to the interview because he's received some heat about his competitive nature and his berating of his teammates just to get them up to his level or as near as they can be to his level. And he says, people say that I'm driven, people say that I'm a bully. It's just who I am. It's just who I am. It's a 10 part expose into one of the greatest basketball teams that's ever played the game but perhaps or of equal importance is a window into the psyche of one of the greatest, most competitive sports people that have ever played any sport. It's about his psyche. That word psyche, from which we get the word psychology, the study of the mind and the emotions and uh, how the inner person works, that word psyche is right in this passage here this morning. You might like to look down so I can show you. It's there four times or so in verses 25 to 26 of Matthew chapter 16. Let me read it to you. For whoever wants to save his psyche 
or life will lose it, but whoever loses his psyche or life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his psyche? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul or his psyche? So four times you've got the word psyche that appears there. And Jesus says it's not about basketball, but we all have that longing to know who we are. We have that longing, that God-shaped hole in our hearts to find out how life works. What is the truth of spiritual realities? Where do I fit in? Where's history heading? And although we looked at Peter's response last week, I want us in these uh, six sentences, verses 21 through to 27, to see again. We need to see again Peter's mistake. Peter's mistake, that's in sentence 21 to 23. And then what do we learn from Peter's mistakes? That's in sentences 24 to 27. And, and then we're going to apply that. So that's where we're going. Peter's mistake. Uh, what teaching came, comes from that? And, and then what do we learn? How do we apply that? But let, let's look afresh at Peter's mistake that we touched on last week. And that's in verses uh, 21 and following. Now, have you ever thought, why would Jesus say what he said to Peter? Have you ever thought that? Thinking on the back of last week where, where Jesus asks Peter to do a quick survey. Hey, who do the people say that I am? And then who do you say I am? That's in sentences 13 and 15. And notice how Jesus responds, just the sheer forcefulness of the words of Jesus to his follower, Simon, who is now renamed Peter. Look at the forcefulness of what Jesus says. He says, get behind me, Satan. That's pretty strong words. I mean, when Jesus speaks to marginal people in the Gospels, when he speaks to the poor and to the lowly, Jesus is so, so very gentle. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's tender. When Jesus speaks to the religious elite, he's more forceful. He's more direct. He's He's more concerned for their hearts, you could say. And so he cuts through the facade and goes directly to their spirits. He's harsher than when he speaks to the marginal folk of society. But there's nowhere, there's nowhere in the four Gospels where Jesus speaks so directly, so firmly, so forcefully to anyone than he does to Peter here. We look at verse 23. Peter, you're thinking like Satan. <laughs> you I mean, you don't get any more direct than that. It's so forceful from Jesus, but that's not all. Look at the timing of it. Sentence 21 again. Sentence 21. From that time on, Jesus began. Now, this is the back end of the conversation that we looked at last week. So we won't rehearse that. But who do you say that I am after who do the people say that I am? And, and they point to the prophets. Jesus, we think you are like one of the prophets. And then Peter says, with a moment of great spiritual insight from God, no, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. I mean, other people, the prophets, they say God will provide a way of salvation. But Peter says, no, you're the Christ. You, you are the means of salvation. You're, you're the redeemer. You're not just a prophet. They pointed to God and to his word and call the people back from their sin. But you're the Christ. I can see that. God's shown that to me. You're the Christ. I can see it in parts, not in whole, but you're the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. I mean, 
Peter, along with everyone else, all the other Jews that grew up around the, the basin of the Sea of Galilee, they've been waiting for the Messiah. They would have known from their mother's and father's lips, they would have known Psalm 2. They would have known that the king would come. God would send the king, God would send Messiah, and he would come and he'd crush the enemies of God and he'd bring justice. Kiss the sun because of God's wrath. And it can be averted by trusting God at his promised word through his son. That's Psalm 2. I mean, Peter, he would have known um, Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, it's, it's a kingly figure who's leading a myriad of angelic beings. The king of the cosmos, the, the Lord of hosts, someone would come who would look like the son of man. That's the word. He, he's God incarnate, but he looks human, God in human form. It's, it's the king of Psalm 2, and it's the son of man, one who looks like a son of man from Daniel 7. And Peter would have known that. All Jews would have known that. And Peter says in sentence 24, you're the Christ in earlier verses, but now he gets called, you're like Satan. I mean, how can Jesus say such harsh words so forcefully? Notice the timing of it. When he said such great words to Peter just a few sentences earlier. He changes his name. You're the rock on which I'll build the church. Your testimony will be the foundation of the church. Not you, Peter, but your testimony, your gospel witness, your understanding of Jesus Christ. That will be the apostolic foundation and the apostolic testimony that, that will build a myriad of Christians on. The church will be built on that testimony. But now you're behaving just like Satan. Just a few sentences later. And Peter's ears must be ringing. He's had the greatest words that have ever been said to him. And your testimony will be the foundation of the church. And now he's hearing the harshest words ever said from the lips of Jesus to someone else. You're behaving, you're thinking like Satan. So what's Peter's mistake? Who do you think I am? You're the son of God. And, and now you're thinking like Satan. You knew the words from the Old Testament, but you've not really seen my means and my method. I mean, look at sentence 21. I am the Messiah, but I'm going to overcome the forces of evil. I am the king, but I'm going to overcome the uh, religion of evil. I am the son of man, but I'm going to do away with injustice in a way that you will never truly understand. I'm going to be defeated, sentence 21. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be weak. I'm going to be humbled. I'm not just going to be weak and humble. I'm going to die with arms outstretched for the sins of a lost and a rebellious world. I'm going to be utterly defeated. But in my defeat and in my humiliation will be my ultimate triumph. And Peter couldn't compute. I mean, Jesus is saying this is how the kingdom of God will grow. Not through pride and arrogance and worldly success. The kingdom of God will grow through the son of man, the king of the cosmos, hanging with his arms outstretched on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, you don't understand, Peter. You can see in part, but not in whole. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're thinking like Satan. And uh, this is something I've learned this week. Peter is a stumbling block. For the work of Jesus and the pursuit and growth of the kingdom of God. 
the actual word that Jesus uses there is your stumbling block is the word scandalon. Scandalon. It doesn't mean scandal. It means temptation. And it's exactly the same word that we read in Matthew chapter four, all those Sundays ago when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Do you remember when Jesus had revealed himself as the second Adam and in time as he spoke the words of the Sermon on the Mount as the second Moses, but he's the second Adam going into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one, by Satan himself. Jesus knows because he knows all things, fully man, fully God, that he's come from heaven to earth to go from a t- to go from a nursing at his mother's breast to the cross of Christ. He knows that, but he's tempted to deviate from the cross right at the beginning of his ministry by Satan. He's tempted to, uh, tempted to avoid the cross, tempted to go the easier way, tempted to have a kingdom under Satan's rule that is easy, that's not harsh, that's success-based, not suffering-based. And Jesus says to Peter, if I listen to you, you're tempting me to go away that's a way other than the cross. You're tempting me to go the easy way. You're tempting me to go the back or turn my back on the way of my father. Don't you know what you've done? You're doing exactly what Satan tempted me to do back in the wilderness. He said that all the kingdoms of the earth could be mine. He said that everything I could see could be mine, that uh, there's another way from suffering. And Jesus succeeded where the first Adam failed by quoting the Bible to himself and to his heart and, and banishing Satan from his midst. And that's why he speaks so forcefully and so publicly to Peter in these sentences. You're not thinking like God, you're thinking like men. You're thinking again in your flesh and bloodness. Look at sentence 20 with me. Sentence 20. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You finally understand salvation is not based on what you do, but what on I do. Not on what you can achieve, but on what I will give you by my grace. And then in sentence 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And then he explains why, sentence 21. It's so strange. This moment of revelation, and then don't tell anyone because the time isn't right. I need to go to the cross. It's a summary of Peter's mistake. And out of that mistake, Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches not just Peter, but his disciples who were there. And he says, let me tell you the way to life. It's through death. Let me tell you the way, the pathway to maturity. Let me tell you the way to get a strong God-centered psyche, a strong identity, and it's not through basketball and winning. This is what Peter's mistake, and then secondly, Peter's lesson teaches us from the lips of Jesus. This is the second point, Peter's lesson, and our lesson too. What's the pathway to maturity? Now, if you thought the first point was hard, it doesn't get any easier. This is a tough pill for us to swallow. In uh, Eastern tradition, if you want to find life or find yourself, you need to empty yourself of all worldly ambition, all worldly content. You need to go on a pilgrimage. You need to empty your mind. You need to still your soul. 
the Western approach is completely different. You need to find yourself. You need to get in touch with your emotions and your feeling. And whatever you say and feel is right for you, then that goes. Eastern tradition and Western tradition are poles apart. And Jesus says in sentence 25, if you want to find fulfillment and joy and life, you have to lose yourself for me. It's not about you. If you want to uh, get in touch with your purpose, if you want to know the reason why you were made, you need to lose yourself, but you need to do that for me, sentence 25. There's two little words, for me, are so important. They're critical to the passage. I mean, some people, they, uh, they lose themselves for their family. Other people lose themselves by the need to be needed, codependency. Other people lose themselves in a career. They want to find an identity through what they do and what they achieve and how many resources they make. But then Jesus says in sentence 24, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In other words, strength, well, strength comes through weakness. Strength comes through brokenness. That's how you get a strong identity. It's not through berating people. It's not through working harder. It's not through going to a certain place or doing the right thing. But Jesus is saying, if you want to be strong in me, then that's the way of weakness. That's the pathway to maturity. A growth of dependency is a mature Christian. Hey, understanding where you're not sufficient, where you are needy, where you are humble, that all comes from understanding who we are before Jesus. To find your life in Jesus, you need to lose everything that this world says is meaningful. It's a hard pill to swallow, to understand. But this is what Jesus says, when you understand what it means to follow me, you you get this emotional ability to admit who you are. You get an emotional ability to admit who you are. What do I mean, Peter? Well, Peter thought to be a Christian means you go from strength to strength. And Jesus says, no, no, Peter, you've got it wrong. It goes from weakness to weakness. That's a sign of maturity. Christians are the ones who limp. People Christians are the ones with God-centered confidence, with an understanding that our strength comes not from ourselves, not from within. There is not a hero inside of ourselves, but there is one in heaven. And when you see how much Jesus loves you and he died for you and he, you're accepted in his son, you can look at yourself with a God-given honesty that you've never had before. When you're having an argument with someone you love, you can take 50% of the blame. It's not all them. It never is. I was responsible and so were you. You can do that when your identity is not in yourself and not how great you are. You can admit that you're not all together. You don't have to wear a mask any longer. You can say when you struggle. You can say when you're afraid and when you're anxious. You can say when the dark clouds come in on a sunny day because that's how you feel inside. Because knowing who you are in Christ gives you a new identity so you can admit who you are. 
It's not just in words that the world can understand. Here's one that the world struggles to understand. You can admit not just that you're broken and need fixing in a passive way, but you can admit that you're a sinful person. You can admit, and I can admit, that I'm a rebel before God. I'm not uh, just wanting God for what I can get from him. Actually, I don't want him in my life before I'm a Christian. I want to uh, shake my fist at his loving rule. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to understand that you are a rebel before God and you need a hero to rescue you whose name is Jesus. You can admit that uh, you can't save yourself. You can admit that your resources are not enough. You can admit that your strength is too small. That's the first thing that comes when you understand who you are before God. That's what Jesus is teaching Peter from the mistake that he made. But here's the second thing. Not just free from facades and free from masks that you have to wear to prove yourself. You're also free from outside influences. You're free from outside influences. Now, to some degree, we're all controlled. We're all controlled by an image that people say that we should wear. Uh, body shape that the culture says that we should attain to we want to be popular we want to be thought well of we're all wired to seek approval from our parents from our friends and from society in general so our instagram feed is selective about the photos we include and those we don't want to because they're not right and they wouldn't show the right image but notice what jesus says in this parallelism in verse 24 and verse 26, look at those two sentences with me. Jesus says in sentence 24, deny yourself, take up your cross. Then in sentence 26, what does it gain? What does it gain to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? It's a very simple but deep and profound thing that Jesus is saying. The way most of us, apart from Jesus, get an identity is to get the whole world. We think if we get the world or get the part of the world that we're interested in, then that's how we get life. Jesus says, no, no, no. The only way to get a lasting identity that satisfies, that won't tarnish, that won't spoil, perish or fade, is if your identity is in me. As if your identity is not in the world, you need to lose the world because that will perish. The pandemic has reminded us of that. But in me is life. If you follow me, it's hope and certainty and security and a foundation for your life, both now and on into the future. It's not about your career. It's not about the small size of your bank balance or the sufficiency and strength that you think it reveals when it's slightly larger. We look at love and we say, if this person loves me, then I'm a someone. This person's love has moved away from me therefore I'm a no one I'm popular or I'm not I'm successful when my profession is going uh, on the rise and when it's tanked I'm clearly a no one I've got a middle-class lifestyle I've, I've finally made it in the right postcode in the sunny part of Surrey whatever it is you could get that but you could lose your soul says Jesus his strong words are not just to Peter they're to me and they're to you does it profit someone to get the whole world and yet forfeit their psyche, their inner world, their soul, their life? So how in the world can you be free from that? I mean, everyone's doing it. We're just following the crowd if we're not Christians. 
And sometimes if we're Christians, we do something of a mix and match. So we follow Jesus when it's convenient and we compromise and marginalize Jesus's words when it's not. We just blend in. There is a way, says Jesus, to follow me and then people's approval will no longer control you. There is a way so that your bank account can be just a bank account, that money is a neutral thing. It's the love of money that's the dangerous thing. But there is a way to see through it so it's not your life, it's not your all. It's not your source of anxiety. Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of strength to be able to see through the approval junkiness of my spirit and yours? Now, how do you get there? How do you get to that point? I think you only get to that point when God humbles you enough, when he takes your knees away, so to speak, when he shows you the idols of my heart and yours. That's the only way you can move from strength to strength is when you're brought low, when God humbles you so that he then might exalt you in his son. That by his grace, he shows you the holes in your boat as you start to sink. He shows you your futility like he's done to me again in the past few months and to many thousands and millions of people around the world. But as I said to someone this week, my concern is our memories are so quick to forget the lessons that we've been learning. I think patterns of behavior and life will go back to normality very quickly if we're not careful. And that's why we need to hear Jesus's final words from this passage. It's about understanding your identity, but it's also understanding Jesus's call. Did you notice those two strong words from Jesus? You get a purpose. That's the third thing of the lessons we learned from Peter's mistake. You get a mission. You get a mission. Follow me, says Jesus. Follow me. Christian friends, can I talk to you just for a moment? There's some of us who've got some pretty big crosses in our lives. There's some of us that are going through great hardship. Some of us, lockdown has been just an inconvenience, no more. But how do we understand suffering with a capital S when it comes into our lives? How do we understand crosses when they weigh upon us? When we're called to follow Jesus, but it's hard as Christians. When that happens, it seems to me that at least two things happen when suffering is brought into our lives by God, which is so often a mercy. First of all, the cross or the little crosses that we carry, they challenge our wisdom. When suffering comes, you're tempted, I'm tempted to say, God has let me down. Where is God? Doesn't he know how hard things are? Has he left me? Has he deserted me? And when that happens, the small crosses that we carry, the suffering that we see in the world, can cause us to doubt God's wisdom. But think about Jesus. Think about Jesus who lost his job. Think about Jesus who lost his money and all his friends. Think about Jesus as he was abandoned and compare your cross to the significance and magnitude of his cross. I mean, couldn't God be doing something in your life and my life right now through difficulty and tears and pain and hardship? Couldn't he be doing something that we can't see, but we can trust him in the midst of this? When suffering comes, compare your cross as you follow Jesus to the significance of his cross. Think about what he went through and why he went through it. Our small crosses show us the paucity of our wisdom and the significance of the wisdom of God. 
But here's the second thing I think our small crosses as we carry them to following Jesus can show us. They challenge our wisdom and they challenge our fears. They challenge our fears. I mean, one thing your heart can tell you and our heart, my heart lies so often, is that when things go wrong for us, when suffering comes, say you're a failure. God sent that into your life because you're doing something wrong. It's like performance-related pay. You're not following Jesus faithfully, so suffering has come into your heart and mind and experience. God never works like that. God's far greater than our imagination. He's far more faithful a father than we ever had. And the cross of Jesus says, no, God will never desert you. God will never turn his back on you. Look at what God gave up for you and for me. He didn't spare his best, but his best was put on the cross. God the Father emptied heaven of his most prized possession for the glory of his name and for our great and eternal good. So suffering, when it comes, it punches a hole in our earthly wisdom. It reminds us of God's wisdom. And may it never cause us to doubt God's goodness and kindness when we are afraid that God has turned his back on us. He never has. And the cross shows us he never will. And the cross shows us that God spent the family fortune on you and on me. He gave his son he did not deny us his very best what makes us you and i think that god will abandon you now he never will he gave his son in exchange for your soul he'll never turn his back on you that's how big and significant the cross of jesus is so look at the cross of jesus when our cross feels too heavy and when god's wisdom looks like it's got holes in it and when we're afraid look to the cross Friends, if you're tuning in and you're not a Christian, can I say this to you? Don't try on Christianity like a set of clothes. Don't try on Christianity thinking, if it's comfortable, I'll wear it and I'll keep it. I'll go forward and find out more. It'll never be comfortable. Following Jesus is hard. Following Jesus is such a challenge. But don't think, oh, if it's comfortable, I'll keep Jesus. I'll try him on. And if it's not, I won't. Can I tell you? Following Jesus is hard, but following Jesus is the greatest thing that you will ever know in this world. And it promises a greater future than you can ever dream of or imagine. I mean, think about your fondest dreams this morning. Think about the place you want to be. Think about the people you want to be with. All those earthly things that are great and good, they're just a foretaste of the greatness and glory of heaven. That Jesus says, I promise you far better than that in the gospel. Your best life will not be now, but in me, in the son whom I love and sent to be a rescuer and savior and friend, in him is all your dreams come true and far beyond. And that's why Jesus says these sentences. Lose your life to find it? Not quite. Lose your life to find me, and then you'll find it. Let me pray.